Thank you. A big thank you to the All Good Bookshop for hosting this small but perfectly formed uh, event, exploring some of the themes behind the book, uh, to wear uh, two black to wear whites, both by uh, Richard and also by John T. Winch, which is available in all good bookshops, including the All Good Bookshop, I'm told. So I'm planning to ask a few questions and then open up the floor for any other questions or comments or observations and also ask Richard if there's anything that I haven't raised uh, or grilled him about. Uh, we're going to probably try and use the Lewis Duckworth method to work out who wins in terms of the timing and there will be a strictness <coughs> about the overrate in terms of the way that Richard asks questions. I asked him how he was earlier, it took 45 minutes, so I'm hoping to cram some of that down. And I know that, uh, that he and uh, family and friends are rightly proud of uh, the book, uh, and it has uh, been lauded as highly recommended by the Cricket Writers Club earlier this month. So congratulations to you and to John T, and Yabu sucks to Mike Brearley, among others. Um, I'd like to begin uh, sort of with a, a quote from Paul Edwards writing in The Cricketer. Uh, anyone reading this book will see clearly that there is a story here and one of the shabbiest aspects is summed up by the authors Richard Parry and Johnny Winch with characteristic clarity. When it suited the establishment, an individual could be treated as racially inferior, denied opportunity, relocated or exploited. Hi Jane. Hi. That wasn't in the quote. Uh, <laughs> such was the fate of Hendricks and some 70 years later that of Basil Dolivera. And such, one might add, was also the fate of hundreds of other talented cricketers whose ethnicity did not fit with white South Africa's conception of nationhood. So that sort of sets the scene of where we're in at the moment. So, Rich, let's begin. How did you discover Crom Hendricks, and why did you decide to write a book about him? Let me go back a little bit to... What we're what we're dealing with here, and I thank you for for reading that, Paul Edwards. I think that's uh, I think that, that's, does sum up where we're uh, where we're coming from. But what I really wanted to talk, to say was this is all about the relationship between cricket and race. Now, this is not a relationship which most of you might have stumbled across in your everyday lives. It's the sort of thing that uh, that that uh, people who are aficionados in the area get into. Um, but let me just say that that's actually become a, a significant political issue in the last week. Uh, we've had, a, we've had a, two specific instances where cricket and race have become headline news. The first is at Yorkshire County Cricket Club, uh, where, uh, where Azim Rafiq uh, won an inquiry, or at least an inquiry into, into races, yeah. but Yorkshire was widened by Rafiq, uh, and, uh, and Yorkshire have apologised, however they have said, not surprisingly in these circumstances, that no individuals will be fired and nothing will happen. But you know, we were racist, but who cares? Which Could this be a whitewash be... by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> it is just possible. Uh, which is the standard approach to issues of this kind. So, so you have that on the, on, the, on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, we have the South Africans playing against the West Indies earlier this week, uh, where uh, the South African team were... Uh, were told, instructed yeah. by Cricket South Africa to take the knee, yes, what Steve said to do uh, at this stage, particularly play against the West Indies, yeah. we will clearly have a, a significant interest in this. Um, and we're told to take the knee. Quentin de Kock, who was 
who had been South Africa's captain and who's clearly their best player, uh, refused to do so uh, and in fact pulled out of the game because he refused to be told what, what to do. In fact, he, he then apologised later and once he learned that this wasn't a good idea to end his cricket career in this way, so uh, he apologised that everything's, everything's fired again, supposedly. Um, but it is, an, it is sy- symptomatic mm. of the fact that, that cricket is a political, uh, a political and social entity. That the people who play cricket and the institutions that support cricket are all about uh, are all about society and how it works. And that in the South African context, cricket is fundamental to uh, the way racism developed into an institutionalised form in South Africa was segregation, which then became oh. apartheid after 1948. We'll no doubt go into a bit oh. of that later. But to come back to, so that's the context, if you like, and I think it's pretty useful yeah. to have a bit of that. To come back to the question of how did we get into it and why did we do it, um, well, there are two authors to this, as you've suggested, myself and John T. Wich, who I, I worked with uh, on, on putting this together. Um, I'll give you my course. I can't really speak for Jotis, but I can tell you how we interacted, how we intersected. Um, for me, the, the I'd always been interested when I grew up, I grew up under apartheid in South Africa, so I grew up in a in a, a, a rigorous uh, and evil racist system. Um, I, Get off the fence. What do you really think? About <laughs> <laughs> I I hated it when I was there. Uh, I. I got out, I left, and, and, uh, and, and I, became, I came over here as a political refugee. And I wanted this, in essence, to figure out what lay at the roots of all of this stuff. Why is it that people were, such, such, you know, were, were, were incapable of, of understanding the, the human inter- integration that we all obviously live with? Um, what, is it, what is it that made race such a particular feature of the South African landscape? And uh, it's quite clear that race, in a way, is a con. It's a complete con. It's, racism means, race means nothing. What it is, it's, it's an economic structure, essentially. But we'll come, come to that in a minute. So I came, I came over here and I did a, a, I did a master's uh, in Canada on, on Cecil Rhodes and the origins of segregation at the Cape in this period, in the 1890s. Uh, I knew nothing about Crom Hendricks. Uh, at all, despite being a cricket fan, I'd never heard of this guy, um, and and it didn't come up in the. It's not in my. It's not in my, uh, in my thesis at all. Sadly, I wish it had been, um, but I missed out on all of that. Uh, so, but I did have a fairly good understanding of what segregation was about, how all this stuff started in the eighteen nineties. Um, so I then, a few years after that, I I was writing some basic stuff on South African cricket history. Uh, one of the one of the issues I, I thought I would look at would be the centenary of the 1894 South African tour to England. Yeah. Uh, the the tour itself uh, took place based on uh, it was the first tour that was that was South Africa did abroad with regard to a foreign uh, foreign country playing sport as South Africa. It wasn't even a country at that point. It was four different countries, but they grouped together, a bit like the West Indies, to become a, yeah. a cricket team. Um, so I, I looked at that. I looked at the newspapers and, and so on, and, and the, the archives that are available on that. And I discovered pretty, pretty quickly that, in fact, all of the discussions about the tour were not about the tour. They were about the guy who wasn't on the tour. 
yeah. about this guy called Tron Hendricks uh, and the fact that there was this fantastic fast bowler who everybody knew about who was for a black guy and, and we'll, the term and racist terminology is complicated so we'll just call him black for now um, and he was uh, he would have been the big draw card for the tour but he wasn't there and the, the tour itself, the, the management of the tour, spent the whole time trying to defend against questions based on who is this guy and why is he here? Uh, and with, with great difficulty, uh, in fact. And, and didn't do a very good job of that. And the tour was a complete disaster. Um, but, uh, but what it meant to me, of course, was that it was, it was crucial that we needed to get a, uh, one way or another, we needed to get a a sense of who this guy was, because I'd never heard of him, yeah. and I knew reasonable about about South African cricket and so on. Uh, nobody else that I was aware of really knew about him. So I, I decided to track back and to see who he was. So I went through the newspapers to just to just establish this and yeah. so on, and then to establish uh, his history from there. And, and, and I discovered very early on that nobody knew who he was. That, he was called T. Hendricks, S. Hendricks, A. Hendricks, H. Hendricks, in different sources. And, but nobody ever said more than a couple of words about him. Nobody actually knew. Uh, so at that point, I thought, OK, maybe we have a story here. Uh, so I started working on that story. Uh, and, then, and then at the same time, I, uh, I ran into John T. Witch, who was working on something completely different, which was... The first, uh, the first English tour to South Africa in 1889 uh, had the youngest ever England captain, a guy called Monty Barden, who captained the, the second test. And he was 20, 21 years old, and uh, he, was a, he played cricket, he was a stockbroker uh, in Johannesburg for a while, had disastrous business, ended up running, uh, running booze uh, on, the, on the northern border of, of South Africa through what was just becoming Rhodesia, it wasn't even really a country at all, uh, and eventually got, uh, got blackwater fever, which is the worst, worst sort of malarial strain you can get, which basically kills you within about eight hours. And he was dead in eight hours, and they buried him in whiskey, whiskey cases. Which was all they had to bury. They, they were empty at the time. I, 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 I think he drank them. I think well, he. Yeah. Them, so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So Johnny was into into this, but in the course of doing all of this, he'd come across this Hendricks guy as well, because it was the same period and reading the papers and all that. And and we, so we had a chat about it, and, and eventually we ended up, after several chats about it, figuring out there was maybe there was a story that needed to be told here, and it was a story that needed to be told about two things. One was about the the, the essence of it was the, the personality and individualism of this character and his ability to struggle with the system over 25 years uh, in the first instance. Mm. And the second was the, the origins of the segregation thing and what a key role cricket actually played in setting up segregation, which then became apartheid. So it was, it was going back to that question I initially tried to answer when I left South Africa is, is why do we have this this bad, stupid leadership that we that the country is in? You know, why is this the case? And in terms of the cricketer, you talked about this uh, character, this player. How good a cricketer was he, and how do we know this? Well, he, it wouldn't have been a story if he hadn't been a fantastic cricketer. So you know, just being a cricketer isn't enough. This guy was this this guy was the business. 
Uh, I didn't play against you myself. I'm not quite that old, but you look it. No. <laughs> sometimes we all feel it. Sometimes, but, yeah, yeah, sometimes we do. Um, but he was uh, he was an exceptional cricketer. Uh, he um, he played in in 1891. Uh, England sent out their second touring party to South Africa, and the last game of the tour. They played against the South African team, not of course including including Henry, um, but the South African team were all white, of course. Uh, they played at Newlands, with the main cricket ground in South Africa, uh, beautiful ground, as those of you who've seen it will know. Uh, and he um, and and they were absolutely well. The English team absolutely marmalised South Africa. They, they they killed them off in a day and a half. It was supposed to be four days, but in a day and a half, they smashed them. So they had a big problem on their hands because they had a, the guys who ran Newlands had a huge debt and they were relying on four days of cricket and the crowds coming on because there was no other revenue sources, of course, apart from the guys who came through the gates in the 1890s. There was no media or whatever stuff. So it was all about the crowds. So they finished them off just about lunchtime on the second day. And so they absolutely had to find uh, a way of keeping those guys in the grounds and bringing them back the next day. So they, they an hour, two hours after lunch, uh, they started a second game. And the second game was against, was, was the professionals, the English professionals, who'd been part of this touring team, and there were, they, they were uh, 10 of those, plus another player, they found, um, against a, what was known as a, a Malay team, a non-European Cape team, which was a really successful team, which had, which had got, won various, uh, various regional championships within the Cape province in the 1890s. Um, and they played against these guys. And this was the only time that they played against a black team. Yeah. Uh, the, the England played against a black team in South Africa until Mike Atherton went back there in 1994. Yeah. So that's how long it took for this event to be, uh, to be replicated. Yeah. So they played this game. And in this game, the, the Malays gave these guys a real run for their money, yeah, yeah. despite being, you know, not being, not having the equipment and not having whatever. They were they were extremely good cricket team. Uh, they were clearly as good as certainly as good as the South African yeah. official team was. And of course, the the star player in there was 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 Hendricks, Crom Hendricks. Now it led to some confusion because there were three Hendricks yes. playing yeah. in that particular game. So that's why historians have never well, managed... figures are so good, then? Well, there were two... They... <laughs> well, well, the problem was, actually, that what was difficult was that the, the one whose figures actually looked best on paper was not Crom Hendricks. Armin Hendricks, exactly. Armin Hendricks was the guy who got four for 50. Yeah. Crom Hendricks only got a couple of wickets. Yeah. But he did... But, but the reports of how he bowled made it clear that he was, he was the outstanding player. And uh, and the the probably the most uh, the most significant batsman in that team was a, a professional from Derbyshire called Bill Chatterton, uh, and Bill Chatterton talked about uh, talked about fast bowlers he had faced later a little later in life to uh, to an interviewer and, was, uh, and, I'll, and I'll read you what he says. Um, this is this is the uh, this is. Albert Knight, who's, uh, who's had a conversation with Bill Chatterton. Bill Chatterton's a very doer uh, guy. He doesn't give a lot away. He doesn't say a lot. He's Jeffrey Boycott. To those of you who know something about cricket, he's, he's the 1890s <coughs> Jeff Boycott. So uh, 
and he bats like that. It's, this is, you know, it's, it's, he's a throwback. Um, so uh, the latter, that's, that's Bill Chatterton, mentioned that he had played at home against Richardson, Lockwood and Mould, the best English bowlers at the time, and against the greatest uh, of the Australian geniuses, uh, the demons, Spofforth, uh, uh, Fred Spofforth, and, and Charles Turner. According to, according to um, Knight's impression, Chatterton shook his head as the great name of Spofforth passed his lips and agreed that much might be urged on his behalf in a claim as the world's greatest bowler. Yet the very ablest bowler he had ever met he believed to be not Spofforth, but a South African black, Hendricks. The memory of this name, of this man's pace from the pitch, his quick swing away, alternating with a fine break back, stirred a cold and critical nature to enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we know. That's how, okay, that's how we know. Uh, we, we have other reasons to know as well. Uh, the, following, the, the following English tour in 1896, um, Tom Hayward, England's best batsman, was asked how, uh, who the best bowler he'd faced on the tour was. And uh, he thought for about three seconds, and he said, uh, he said, Cromer Hendricks. Mm. And they said, who? Because he hadn't, he wasn't allowed to play against Cromer Hendricks. Or That's right. Yeah. But he'd faced him in the nets. Yeah. He was that good. That, he'd, that, that Tom Hayward knew he was the best bowler in the country. And, of course, his performances uh, within Cape Cricket were, were legendary. Uh, and he had, you know, he, he took uh, nine wickets for no runs on one occasion, which was the the best performance in South African cricket for, uh, for, up till 1950. For, for, I should say, for those of you who don't follow cricket, that's quite good. That's, quite good. <laughs> that's, that's sort of a bit... Yeah, I've, I've done that a couple of times. No, yeah. that, that's, that's very, very good. And um, I, I'm going to throw you a bone here. Yeah. Um, why right. do you think he was banned from establishment cricket? Mm. Right. Well... Could possibly be the reason. <laughs> well, let's... Again, let's let's try and put this into a little bit of context. Um, South Africa, and we're talking, and we're talking about the Cape now. We're talking about the Cape Peninsula, Cape Town, and and, and the the area around that uh, had a had been had been colonised in 1652. And I'm not going to give you a full history of it from there, don't worry. But uh, for for several hundred years, it had a a um, a, a population made up of of Four different categories, essentially: uh, white settlers who were originally Dutch, uh, became Afrikaner uh, or African in a sense, uh, as they as they uh, acclimatized to the African uh, position. Um, English settlers who, after England took over the Cape in, in uh, 18, 1806, 1807, uh, and then two other categories. One were Indigenous African Africans, some of whom lived in Cape Town, but not so many, uh, who were either Koza or uh, or or San, as the Bushmen are now known, as used to, uh, or uh, or again, you know, derogatory terminology, but colonial terminology, and, and the Hottentots as well, which are again derogatory terminology. But the and the, the fourth category was uh, was the the freed slaves, uh, what were called Malays. But of course, freed slaves were, yeah. but uh, been freed for fifty years, so they were in a different. They got into a different cultural thing altogether, and and the inter engagement interaction between these four groups was really uh, w was was very hard to chart. Which is why the racism thing is such a 
a, a strange beast to come out of this because of course you're not talking about any kind of race thing at all yeah you're talking about essentially class and the relationship with Brits at the top and then, you know and so on um, so that's the uh, that's the the essence really of of um, the context to this so within that uh, the Cape was governed by the Prime Minister at the time in the early 1890s. Cecil John Rhodes was Prime Minister of the Cape. He also happened to own all the diamond mines in Kimberley. South Africa was the largest, world's largest supplier of diamonds at the time. Uh, and he also owned a, subst owned a substantial chunk of the, uh, of, of the gold mines on the mm. Bitvotis Road. So basically, he, ran, he, he owned the place. He owned the, the country. Um, and uh, and within that within that context, his his private secretary happened to be the South African cricket captain, uh, a guy called William Milton. So the issue then was so given Rhodes has a great deal of power in the situation. Um, South Africa are selecting their first team to go overseas in 1894. Uh, they've had this game against the Malays, they've had this game against the England tourists, and they've spotted that Hendricks is a pretty serious player. Do they pick him? And don't they pick him? The, the cricketers are, are almost unanimous in saying you've got to have this guy, he's just the best thing out there. And not only that, but he's a huge draw card because England loves the idea of having these sort of exotic black guys from, you know, from the Cape turning up and playing cricket. You know, he, was a, he would have been a huge draw card. He would have been all over it. You know, they would have been all over him. Um, so, uh, so there was strong pressure to select him. Uh, Cecil Rhodes sent his private secretary, as I say, captain of South African cricket, to the selection meeting. It's a long meeting and a, quite a debate. Uh, but Cecil Rhodes basically vetoed Hendricks's selection. He was selected at the he was vetoed uh, by, by Rhodes. So you're saying Rhodes is not a great guy then? Well, no, I mean, it depends who you are, really. I mean, if you're, a, if you're an investor in the gold mines and you're trying to make sure that you maximise your profits because of the use of, uh, the use of black labour on, on... But if below, you're a sports fan? If you're a sports fan, if you're a sports fan, no. If you're, in fact, if you're just about anything else, no. Uh, no, Rhodes, Rhodes not only was... was one of the key architects of the whole imperial process of the 1890s, but he was also the guy who set in, in stone for the first time this notion of race as a way of, of structuring society. And he did this by saying that if, you, if you, you cannot select a player for the South African cricket team who is black, mm. uh, the, the issue, the, 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 there were two key issues for this. One was a kind of social issue. There was the, ideolo the ideology of racism permeated through in the 18, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. You got Tom Brown's school days, and you get a load of uh, there are a load of commentators talking about race and the hierarchy of being and the sort of mm -hmm. social Darwinist thinking mm -hmm. that went on, which basically saw race as a kind of critical factor. So that was one aspect of it. The other, more important aspect for Rhodes was that what he wanted was cheap black labour to work on the mines. Those, those mines were fundamental to him and to South Africa and to the investment that he wanted in the country. And, uh, and, and for him, you had to be... A, to, the South Africa was a white man's country. Mm. And they, they defined it in those, those terms, the way Australia, I think, did it so at a later stage. Um, but that was... They defined it very specifically as that in the sense that there was no way that black player could play for South Africa. But what that meant was that black... 
blacks were no, actually not, were defined out of being South Africans. They were no longer South Africans at all. They were just part of the fauna, you know, the landscape. And that's the, the real evil in this, and the real, you know, my anger about this comes out of, you know, from that particular issue. It's, it's the fact that, that, you're, that somebody's able, through politi- a political process like that, to essentially create lives of misery for millions of human beings for the next hundred years. Well, I, I want to look at some of those racial divisions in, in a moment. But, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out for uh, the audience for Intelligent Life, Uh, I'm going to keep on looking Um, but why is it amongst a reasonably well informed Radio 4 looking Guardian leaning Telegraph reading a game of audio Don't wake him up It'll be delivered Um, tomorrow morning Why have none of us heard of Crom Hendricks? Why is he not in our history? Why do we not know anything about him? Well, uh, there, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, the first is that, is that black cricket is, is, is completely eliminated from histories of the game. So there is no, there is no description of, of who played. There's no description. The press don't write reports about it. The, uh, the commentators who are, looking at, who are writing about cricket don't comment on it. Um, the, the, there is no means of, of, of accessing most of the things that actually took place. Now, some there is, and yeah. some have been put together, and there's a, uh, Andre Urdendahl and, and a number of us are working together to try and transform South African history, to rewrite what really happened. In other words, to talk about the history of black cricket as well as about white cricket, so that, we, so that black cricketers get a... Uh, uh, get get an acknowledgement as to what they really did and what they achieved in all of this. And one of the things that that we're looking to do is to get the uh, is is to get the archivists and the statisticians and the statisticians in anybody who knows the statisticians in English cricket will recognise that their ability to be revolutionary is kind of limited. Um, but we want to get these guys to recognise as first class the games that have been played by black cricketers in this period who are playing representative cricket. In other words, the provincial tournaments and so on, and there were lots of them. And I mentioned that this Malay side was really good and had won, a, had won regional tournaments and so on. I mean, these guys were organised. They were far more organised in some ways than the white guys who thought they were the only people on the planet. Um, so so for, on one level, this stuff wasn't reported. On another level, nobody wanted to talk about this particularly this was kind of, this racist thing was okay, but it was kind of a bit embarrassing. Mm. And essentially, it, it doesn't appear in, in any of the histories of, of this. There's a mention of, um, in, in the 1915 history of South African cricket, which basically is 838 pages by Boris Lukin of cricket, and mentions once, says, uh, a coloured boy Hendrix... Mm. Uh, would may, might have been selected for the touring team in 1894, but this would have been impolitic, that's mm. the, the word that was used. In other words, forget it. Mm. Uh, so South African history has been written from the point of view of the winners, the white guys, always, and particularly in cricket. Mm. 
And it, you don't, and that is still the case, and it's only slowly starting to change. And that's why I mentioned this thing about Quentin de Kock taking the knee this week, and that issue, because this is still a live issue. Yeah. We're still in this. So, yeah, it's an airbrush job, yeah? And we need to change it. We need to get the real history of what happened in South Africa. I think one of the really insidious things uh, from, from my reading uh, about the deep-rooted nature of the colonialism is that actually Hendrix describes himself as European. And uh, the issue seems to be non-white players can't play. And the issue is then about, well, are players white enough? And so it's almost as though Hendrix himself, among others, I'm sure, has sort of signed up to this and said, okay, well, actually grade me. I'm, I'm surely I'm, I'm the right Pantone or whatever it is, the shade colors or, and was that, was that a purely racial thing or was there a class thing or do you think things are linked? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure that I would, I would share that, that, uh, that perspective actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Hendrix does say uh, on, I mean, we know very little about Hendrix's actual thoughts of all of this. We have one letter, we have a couple of interviews where he's reported indirectly of saying, of saying things, and we have a, a note from a meeting where he sent a letter to the meeting, but basically they haven't bothered to publish it. So we only have a white interpretation mm. apart from one single letter to, uh, to, to substantiate where he's from. And this, this is in marked contrast. Mm. For example, I, I, uh, a, a friend of mine who writes about India and the history mm. of cricket in India, uh, Ram Guha, um, gave a talk on his book about his series of books about Gandhi. He wrote a three volume thing on Gandhi. Uh, and Did, was he lauded by the Cricket Writers Club? He was on the shortlist actually, but he, he didn't uh, make it. He didn't yeah. make it. Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, and it's really, and it's really. Anyway, <laughs> so, so uh, and Ram, Ram was giving this talk about writing Gandhi, and, he, and they asked him, you know, how did you write this thing? And he said, well, he said, the problem with Gandhi is it, it's kind of tricky to, to get through some of this material. He said, there's a, there's a hundred volumes of Gandhi's speeches, mm. words, articles, everything, a hundred volumes of stuff brought together of everything Gandhi's ever said, basically. And, and, and uh, so you have to start with that. And then you have to read all the stuff that's about him. Now, I had kind of, well, John T and I had the opposite problem. We had a 187 word letter. Mm. One letter. That's all we had to go on to write this guy's life. Is one letter. But he does talk about, well, he's, in that letter, he says his father was a European, Dutch, he says, mm. and his mother was from St. Helena. Now, people from St. Helena tended to be come over as, as laborers from St. Helena, the local St. Helena population. They weren't considered in, in the rather complex Cape taxonomy. They weren't considered to be white as such. So, whatever. Um, and also, the point was that he he didn't actually know who his father was, mm. and that's that's the interesting part about all of this is that Hendrix doesn't know who he is. Mm. So, and also, Hendrix is operating in an environment where what race you are is of no significance at all because ultimately it's class. You know, ultimately it's who you're with and what jobs you have and so on. But there are some there are some informal barriers to things. To the workplace, 
there's only certain levels you can go if you're not actually, you know, white or whatever in the workplace. There's a job, kind of job, colour bar, informal. It becomes formal much later on. But it's sort of informal. But if you're an engine driver and he's an engine driver, essentially you've got to be white. And he's sort of sneaked into this thing. But he can't say he's not white because he'll lose his job as an engine driver. So he's actually not saying he's European because he wants to play cricket. He's saying he's European because he's an engine driver. And he's got to keep it. And he's got to keep it. He's got 12 kids. Yeah. He's got 12 kids, oh. you know. <laughs> he's got an entire cricket team of his own to deal with. So, <laughs> you know, this has to, you know, this, this is part of that. So, but actually, Hendrix is not thinking at all about race in all of this. Why would he? You know, nobody's ever not being selected for a cricket team because of their race. Ever. So why should he think he has to defend himself against that possibility? He doesn't. He just, the whole thing just doesn't work that way for Hendricks. But what he does know is that he is being discriminated against for whatever reason. And that he will fight this thing. And he fights it. And he gets discriminated against in 1894 on the South African level. And then within Cape Town itself, he gets discriminated against as well and told he can't be a professional cricketer. And he fights this thing all the way through till he's 46. And he's still bowling. And he's, he's 46 years old and he fights it one last time. So we, we've got about five years left between us then? Well, yeah, I don't think so. Maybe a little yeah. less for you, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, <laughs> so he, in, in 1904, he fights it for the last time. And, they, and he writes this long letter, which we don't have access to because they can't be asked to publish this thing, which is, drives historians crazy. Uh, so you don't actually know what was said, so we only know what they said in the meeting. The, this is now the, the Cape Western Province Cricket Association meeting, who were a bunch of Nazis, if I've ever seen any. And uh, anyway, these guys, these guys they, they, they get his long letter, they say, we had a letter from Hendricks again, uh, and, but the chairman decided to move on to other business. And that's basically what happens. They just ignore him. They ignore him. And this guy is, you know, he's fought all of this time and he's to, to be what, what he is, which is an exceptional, astonishing cricketer. And he's, uh, you know, the most amazingly dignified, organized, resilient guy. And yet he's getting screwed all, all the time by these petty bigots who run the system. I hope you're getting a sense of where I'm kind of a bit pissed off with the rest of Provence Yeah, it's not, not a happy story, uh, not entirely happy. But um, in terms of the way in which racism operates, and again, I'm trying to apply logic to this, and maybe that's a failing on my part, but I'm struck by the fact that you have two brothers, I've, I'm afraid I've forgotten their names, one who is classified the as white. The Robinsons, yeah. Robinsons, yes. So one is the Swiss white Robinson and mm. one is the non-white Robinson. Yeah. Um, of the same parents. Mm. Is that expediency? What, what's that? That happens. That, that, that ha well, I mean, the thing about all of this is it's because <laughs> race is not just a... Race is not a kind of objective thing. It is a subjective thing. And it depends what criteria you choose to mm. decide what race somebody is or 
or what grades they are. As it turned out, they did have these, this pair of brothers who played first team cricket, first league cricket, and they decided that one of them could play and another one couldn't. Uh, but, it, but they rescinded this within a few months because they realised that they actually had no basis for deciding this. You know, as somebody did say, you know, what is the line of colour to be drawn? Where do we draw it? Where do we know who's what? And that's the, that's the essential con of racism, is you cannot. You cannot. There's no genetic thing that says you're one thing or you're another thing. We're all bits of whatever, you know, obviously. That's, that's the world. You Speak know. yourself. <laughs> I did. So, but, but the point about that is that it's, it's, is, it is fundamental that, that uh, the, nonetheless, South Africa goes down this road following this of trying to define everything in racial terms. And it goes through this until, until you get to the apartheid years, where it becomes a, not only a philosophy mm. and an ideology, but a science. Mm. So you get, people, you, know, you get a whole series of tests conducted by the, the South African Department of the Interior, pencil tests, and other disgusting shit like this, really just, just completely outrageous stuff. You wouldn't believe some of the things they tried to do to, to establish what race some person was or other. And coming to cricketers, there was a guy called Owen Williams who played with Basil Dolivier in the 1850s, sorry, the 1950s and early 1960s. And his, uh, his mother and his brother were defined under the racial, the South Africa's racial act as white. Mm. Uh, and he, he himself, his father and a sister, were def- uh, two sisters, I think, were defined as, as black. And what that meant was not only could they not live together, they couldn't live in the same area, and they couldn't visit each other. And that's how bad apartheid was. That's what apartheid actually got to. That's what Hendrix, the Hendrix did started. That's where you ended up. You talked about the dignity of Hendrix, yes. and indeed another player that you've mentioned there, Basil Dolivera, who yes. will be more familiar, I suspect, to most people in the room maybe because it's within our lifetimes or, in yeah. my case, my grandparents' lifetimes. Uh, and I'm just wondering... <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'm just wondering... Uh, you sort of talked about the Nazis on the other side. and um, it's a flippant expression. It's, it's yeah, a slightly... I wouldn't say they were it on that. Yeah, it was pretty well there. But, yeah. but, but actually, I did have a question about that, which, which I'll come to. Uh, and... Um, they were Nazis by the time we got to apartheid. By well, the indeed. They were but, real Nazis. But what I, what I was wondering about is whether class is still part of this in the 1950s or whether it was just, whether it had mutated like the coronavirus in another way. Was there an alpha racism or an alpha imperialism? Was it just race by the 1950s? Uh, I, think, I think race had just become coterminous with class. Okay. By the 1950s. In the 1890s, the period we're talking about, there was still lots of shifting around and, and, you know, there were all sorts of, you know, race and class didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily coterminous or congruent or whatever word you want to use. But by the time you get to the, by the time you get to the 1950s and 60s, class and race are much the same thing. Wealth, uh, you know, where your, what your, your position is regarding your wealth will depend on your racial position in the hierarchy. And South Africa, frankly, is still like that. Despite 25 years of independence, we still have a system which where race and class are ultimately the same thing. 
they haven't managed to uh, to deal with that yet. <coughs> Hopefully they will, but they haven't yet. And I've got to ask you. Yeah. Some people might say, well, you're a middle-class white man mansplaining uh, apartheid and racial divisions. Why shouldn't this story be told by somebody else? Well, first of all, you notice my disguise have been... Uh, it's, you, I can get that through it. But, but, yeah, through really. it. Um, I've got white dark. You know, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yes, I think, it's a, I think it's a fair question. And, and to be honest, it's not the first time I've been asked that. I was asked that in... in I gave a presentation at Newlands Cricket Ground to, uh, uh, during a one-day international on Hendricks and all, all of this. And of course, I did get that question from Black South Africa who said, you know, what right have you guys got to do to be digging around in our history and, and doing it? And, and I, think it's, I think it's fair. I think one needs to justify that. Um, I, I justify it basically by saying that, that, that history is not actually a neutral thing. History is always written from a particular perspective. And that one should make sure that the perspective that one writes it from gets us as close as possible to the truth. And that as a, as a, a, a white South African, uh, I indeed think that I am trying to get towards the truth and indeed towards transforming the historical process and record of this. However, that's not, a, that's not something I can judge. That's somebody else to judge. The people who read the book have to decide that, whether I, had, I was the right person to write this or not. That's their decision. It's not actually mine. I can't determine who writes this stuff. One finds, one finds the story while writes the story. I, I, all I can say is that I hope, and I really hope, that it stimulates black historians in South Africa to find their real history and to write about it. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be old dogs like me trying to write about it. I completely agree with that. Don't but somebody has down. to. Rich, that's what I'm here for. Don't put yourself <laughs> <laughs> I, I can, I can see that there would be some players that would have been terrified to face this rock star demon bowler, as I think mm. was more recently described. Yes. And I'm reminded of the fury that uh, another uh, of your favourite Nazis had, Adolf Hitler, during the 1936 Berlin Olympics, when Jesse Owens trampled the Aryan supremacy not once but, but four times. Mm. And I'm wondering whether it's too simplistic to say they just didn't want to cope with his speed, accuracy and everything else, because... Uh, there seemed to be a genuine belief that he wouldn't know how to behave in mixed company. Even his, one of his greatest supporters, Cad Cadwallader, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, said, well, you know, he can join the team and he can carry the bags, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's sort of quite shocking, but it's so um, sort of blatant that mm -hmm. even his <coughs> friends are saying, don't worry, he, he, he knows how to behave, he'll, he'll carry the bags. Mm -hmm. Let me... Let me unpick that a little bit. Um, the, uh, the 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 question about the question about white supremacy and the Nazi stuff and, and Jesse Owens. Uh, yeah, there's a kind of parallel. I mean, mm. you know, obviously it's very different, but there's a parallel. Um, then the parallel is simply this: is if you're going to go for a white supremacy system, you've got to you you're kind of under challenge all the time because it means that you have to show that you are actually supreme, but you are actually better. Than anybody else, 
And that's a tough problem. Yeah. You know, white supremacists face this all the time. You know, what about the what about the black guys who are actually pretty smart and know what they're doing and maybe can bowl quite far? So should we feel sorry for uh, no no for I don't this, feel or? particularly sorry okay. for this. Just wanted to check. No, no, I don't feel very sorry for this. Um, but but the the and the, the point behind that is that what Hendrix is, is Hendrix is a direct and fundamental challenge to a system which is just beginning to go down a white supremacist route. Hendrix, by being better than those guys, is a real, is a real challenge. So from that point of view, that's in itself significant. Um, you moved on to talk about race and class mm, then. Sorry, mm. was that... Could you just restate that a bit? Well, it, it, it's, it's more in terms of the fact that it seemed... Uh, almost a given mm. that black players may not know how to behave. Ah, oh, the behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well. First of all, just just to finish the last point about the, fa- the one of the reasons, of course, that Hendricks was n- not playing. In other words, just to spell it out, was that because he was because basically he humiliated mm. the people who played for South Africa, the, the South Africa, the South African captain, Hendricks, uh, Hendricks. Bold on numerous occasions, often first ball, whenever he got a chance to play against these guys, he absolutely crucified them. He was, you know, you can imagine how motivated he would be, you know, and he was, and he was good enough to deliver. So, so from that point of view, he was absolutely on the money. From the point of view of behaviour, the, the, the baggage thing is not a behaviour issue. The baggage thing is because the black guys are servants. Yeah. Okay? So we can't take him on the tour as a player, mm. even if supporters thought, oh, well, maybe we, can, we can't really take him as a player. Well, perhaps we can find a compromise. So we'll take him as a servant, and he can come in and play the odd game, you know, mm. when, we need to, <laughs> when we need to blow apart the opposition. And that's what, that's what Harry Cadwallow would do, was he suggested that he would be a, a, a baggage man on the tour. But in a sense, I, said, I, I, I kind of find that even more disturbing in a way because it's not well it's overt, very disturbing it's just, of course it's disturbing it sort of yeah. accepts the whole system no, absolutely but not but Hendrix didn't yeah no no Hendrix wrote to the to that, that famous letter to the paper the one letter so, we yeah. have in which yeah. he says piss off yeah. I'm not going on your tour I'm certainly not going as a baggage man who do you think you are I you know I'm going I'm a cricketer you mm-hmm. know I'm, I'm, I don't have to do all I, of this nonsense. I mean, I have to say, having read it, of the 186 words, I didn't see the phrase piss off, but I think that you... I, think <laughs> yeah, I was giving the... Uh... <laughs> so, a um, couple of final questions, if mm. I may. You've talked about the revolutionary um, statisticians, and of course, right. being a mild-mannered tax advisor yourself, mm. uh, <laughs> producing an award-winning book, Hopefully you'll be signing copies for anyone that wants one. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. And, and that won't bump up the price by more than 25%. Maybe 30%, but... I've got to take a cut, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and then <laughs> my final sure. question really is that in the movie, mm. forget who's playing... <laughs> forget who's playing Crom. Rich, who's playing you? <laughs> well, I was kind of hoping to be Crom, actually. But... <laughs> But no, good point. Well, I look at Invictus and I think, well, you know. And, Morgan uh, Freeman. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for, for answering some of those questions, most of those questions. I'm going to throw it open in case anybody else wants to ask any questions of Rich. Hopefully, 
<laughs> Where's the <laughs> toilet? No? <laughs> Jane? That's not the I wanted to ask, you mentioned that he had sort of 12 children. Mm. I just wondered whether you met or spoke to any of the descendants and whether it was something that obviously was a story that resonated with them through the family. Yeah, that's an excellent question because this is an area that I didn't deal, I didn't deal with in, this, this, in the discussion we just had because for time reasons. The court, the key to all of this was establishing who he was and who the family was. And this was, a, this was the most difficult aspect of this. And to be honest, this is where John T. put most attention. He was the guy who really focused on the, the sort of family history side of this. And uh, the, the, the bottom line was, we first of all had to narrow down the field as to who Crom Hendricks could have been. Uh, and we got there eventually by finding, by looking at, at, at birth dates found on death certificates in the Cape, in the Cape archives and looking at somebody with the initial H because he'd written this letter H. Hendricks in the paper. So we had, that was hard information. It had to be somebody with an H in there somewhere. So we narrowed it down in terms, and we also knew how old he was because that had been reported. So... We narrowed it down to a year. We found, the, we found the individual. We then found a marriage certificate for him in 1880 uh, when he got married at St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town. Uh, and then we had birth certificates for his kids. And we found, we went through the, the, the whole thing on that. And we had help. We, got a, we, we had a, a, a Heather McAllister, who's a, a genealogist, uh, helped us find the details of all of that in, in Cape Town. And eventually, I ended up finding his grave in, in, uh, in Milnerton Cemetery. Um, so, so that's a quite. A, it was a poignant thing. Yeah, yeah, Milton Cemetery. It was Milton co- being the one that well, had, yeah, had well, play. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was it was a poignant moment. But the family. But moving on to your question, the the family. He had twelve kids, so that's a family like you know. By the time you get into a couple of generations, you know. We, we got through two generations after that. Uh, and, of course, as you might imagine, some of, those, some of the people in those generations were classified coloured, black. Some were classified white on a relatively random basis from what, you know, from what we could see. So we had the sort of situation like the Owen Williams case I, I mentioned. We had that situation in the Hendrix family which is part of one of the reasons why he was obviously trying to hold that together. Um, but certainly by, the t- by his granddaughter, for example, wasn't allowed to be buried in his grave, in the family grave, because she was classified as, as black. And uh, you can't bury black guys in a white grave. You're like, Jesus, what are they going to do? You know? so, so, that, uh, so you had that issue. We then got to the fourth generation and we found several people who were connected to. And we had interesting discussions with probably five of them. Um, Two of them refused to respond to us at all. Uh, One said they would respond and responded for until they found out what we were on about and then blanked us and wouldn't respond to us anymore. Uh, Two others did respond in some detail. One was somebody called uh, Vicky Pride, who's whose grandfather was Hendrix's grandson, and he played football for Liverpool uh, in the 1930s, early 40s. So he, was, uh, he turned out to be a professional footballer, interesting in itself. The other was, the other was, um, uh, was, was somebody called Josie Trott, who, was, who 
who we spoke to, and he was delighted by this, and he saw this as a really, really amazing thing. Um, so we had a really good communication with her. Um, but she didn't, none of these people knew of his existence. No, we never spoke to anybody who knew anything about it. We were bringing this stuff fresh. The, whole, the, the, the intervening years had simply you know, taken, taken the thing off or completely out of everybody's consciousness. And not only that, but Basil D'Oliveira, who, who lived 200 yards away from Crom Hendricks in the workshop on the side of the mountain side of, uh, in, in, in Cape Town, um, who lived 200 yards away 50 years later, and he played for the same club as, as Hendricks had, St. Augustine's. Um, and he was well anchored in the community. His father had played for St. Augustine's and whatever, had never heard of Crom Hendricks. That gives you some idea of how time has diminished that <coughs> engagement, which is such a shame because. But it's you know, all the more why it's so important to kind of yeah, re remember exactly remember to, try and, to try and bring to bring this history back. Alan, yeah, you mentioned that Hendrix worked as an engine driver. Yes, and to work as an engine driver, you'd have to be classified. Well, there wasn't a classification system. You had to be regarded, broadly regarded. Okay. So, in that, following on from that, if Hendrix had been less good at cricket, but still good, might that have altered how he was perceived by the others in uh, terms of, in terms yeah. of cricket? Because you talked about the humiliation that some mm. of them felt at his hands as a bowler. Yeah. So, if he'd been less good, might that have skewed how he was regarded? It might. It might. It might have done. It might. Have, it might well have done. Um, I think the. I think the thing about this is that Hendrix is running two different lives here, mm -hmm. and, and it's kind of it's it's weird because it's obvious that everybody knows he's running two different lives. He's an engine driver, white, supposedly, uh, with a long career as an engine driver. I mean, he's a very you know he's he's. Uh, you know, he has uh, he works for the for the railways for for twenty five years or so um, as an engine driver, and and at the same time the papers are full of this black guy called Hendrix, who is a fast bowler and who is a lethal fast bowler, but he's a black guy. So there is a sort of there is a he's, he's constantly walking a tightrope between the work and the economics, which is the white engine driver thing, which is why this question about him mm. saying he's a mm. European is so sensitive because it's a sort of tightrope. And, and then the, the, the side of this, which is basically saying that, you know, you are so, you know, you are so beyond the pale, I mean, to, sorry to use the expression, but it fits mm. in this, mm. you're so beyond the pale that we're not going to pick you to play cricket for South Africa, and not only that, but we're not even going to allow you to play professional cricket at all, mm. which is where he ends up. So had he been less good, maybe there wouldn't have been an issue. And indeed, they, they, he also was really unfortunate in that all this stuff happened in Cape Town. There was somebody else in Natal who came from a mother who was from Santelina and a father who was Dutch, and who played test cricket for South Africa in the 1890s and the early uh, the early. 1900s, a guy called Buck Llewellyn, Charles Llewellyn, yeah. and he was an extremely good South African cricketer and played, also played league cricket in, 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 uh, in Lancashire as well. Um, but he wasn't quite as good and he wasn't quite, a, quite as fearsome as Hendrix was in a sense. Yeah. But, what, but because we don't know what he looks like, 
And I mean, this is, this is an artist's impression of an artist's impression. So I suspect the moustache may need a bit of trimming. But apart from that, I, don't, I just don't know what he looked like. So, you know, uh, we, we have to, uh, we have to just, just take our chances on that. But I, but I can only assume that he looked black enough so that people felt justified in excluding him because he was black, but not so black that he couldn't do a job as a white engine driver. Where that leaves you is anybody's guess, which is why I say that racism is, is, is subjective nonsense. There's absolutely no way of dealing with this stuff, really. And is it right that the second book that you're writing about him is about his engine driving and his safety record? Absolutely, absolutely. Can I just ask a quick quick follow-up? Can you then speculate on what might have happened if Hendrix had managed to be selected on that tour to England in the 1890s? Just and and what, how that might have taken events and indeed history in a number of different directions? I think it would have taken history in quite a quite a different direction uh, I think if he if he'd been allowed to play for South Africa and what that would have meant essentially that some integration of South African yeah. cricket because there were a load of guys who weren't quite as good as Hendricks but behind him were going to come on and play and that was part of the reason the whites were so freaked out about this because there were loads of other black guys who were also good probably better and than they were in the South African and team yeah. Pre- yeah. presumably would have been so successful it would have been very hard for society to exactly. pretend yeah. otherwise that's right and so you and if you have an integrated South African team then your your opportunities for creating a sort of segregationist model for society become much more difficult. It, it was significant. It was fundamentally significant. I know, you know, I know it's people people laugh at me when I say, you know, cricket and politics are, are really significant are significant connection. But this is significant. It does change. Although it does change it, the world. Interestingly, just following on from that point, I was just thinking again back to Jesse Owens who returned back to a segregationist country. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Tim? I was, I was basically following on from uh, that point. Uh, it would have made a difference in South Africa. Do you believe it would have made a difference in England? He would have come over here. He would have been something of a sideshow, possibly. I mean, we, uh, we weren't a segregated country, politically, mm. but socially, we definitely were. Yeah. Um, so would would it have done him any good to have come over here? This is pure speculation. Yeah. No. I obviously you cannot know because yeah. absolutely. But, you know, it might have done him more damage. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think. I don't think it would have. I think what would have happened. I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, it, you know, frankly, England was a racist society. I mean, no, that was the prevailing ideology at the time. Um, you know, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a member of the National Trust. National Front, National Trust. National Trust. One of the two, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, that was clear, and and the the evidence for that is that uh, that that uh, a guy called Chaos Ranjit Ranjit Singhji or Ranji. Mm-hmm. who was the premier batsman of his generation, he happened to be the Nawab of, of Srinagar, um, was, uh, uh, wasn't selected, or at least the powers that be at the, at the MCC, at Lords, uh, Lord Harris and Lord Hawke, did everything they could to avoid him being selected for English cricket teams. In the end, they failed, but he did play, play for England. He was just so good. Um, but that was, that was an issue. Um, for Hendricks in the UK... 
I mean, I think Hendricks would have come, would have been a hero. I think he would have been a hero in the UK. He had he had everything that I think the UK needed, and it might have it might have just rattled the cages a bit harder of the die-hard racists like Hawke and Harris and whatever. The other thing about there there is a uh, there there is a prior uh, there is a prior event which is the the first tour by Australia to to England is made up of of uh, of Aborigines. It's an Aborigine tour, the first tour, the eighteen fifties, sixties, sixties, yeah, sixties. Now and that's that come they come over as a bit of a circus, a bit of a circus. Although some of them are very good cricketers. And in fact, uh, I have a, a colleague of mine who's writing a history of the first ever test match between England and Australia, says that he has evidence that they were going to select one of these mm. Aborigine guys to play for Australia, and that got vetoed. Mm. So there's an interesting story in that as well, given the Henry's parallels. Mm. So, um, but, but that was, and so there was a sort of, they'd come over as, and, and circuses, the sort of circuses were common. You know, you got Buffalo Bills, Wild West guys were touring all over. You know, it was that sort of stuff. They were they were all into that. Victorians loved it. They loved it. Yeah, they loved it. They loved it. Um, but yeah, no, the next book is about all future of this writing. going. Yeah, going yeah. through into the future, going through into the uh, right up to uh, to the nineteen sixties. So yeah. Unless there's anything else, thank you uh, for that. Give you a little round of applause. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you all. And, and then let Tim. Uh... You're, you're welcome to stay for as long as you want to buy books. <laughs> 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 Particularly